Please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. Our passage for this week is James 5, 19 to 20. Once again, that's James 5, 19 through James 5, 20. This morning marks our last message in the epistle of James. This means that in a few weeks, actually three to be precise, we'll be starting a new book together, Paul's epistle to the Philippians. It's always a bit exciting to start the exposition of a new book of the Scripture, at least I think it's kind of exciting. After all, each book of Scripture is generally themed around a particular topic or idea, so starting a new book often means starting a fresh theme or topic. That's sort of exciting, I think, to start engaging in a new topic where you're sure to encounter a fresh set of ideas about a subject that you may have never given much thought to before. The theme for our next series, for instance, will be the mindset of the evangelist or the evangelistic psyche. That's what I think we encounter more than anything else in the book of Philippians. We get to take a glimpse into not not only what drove Paul to travel to the ends of the earth for the advancement of the gospel, but also what drove the Philippians to send him there. Both Paul and the Philippians are driven by the gospel. And in this letter, we'll get to eavesdrop on a conversation between the two of them and gain an idea of what made them tick. That's not something we've really talked about much during the past 10 months or so as we've been in James. It just hasn't been much of a concern in his letter. So I think that's kind of exciting to begin a fresh topic where I'm sure we'll make new discoveries about something that is incredibly vital for our growth in Christ. Another reason why I think it's exciting to start a new book of Scripture is because this often leads you to encounter different authors who possess a variety of different personalities and styles. With each exposition of Scripture, you get to become further acquainted with one of the authors of Scripture. And when you're changing authors, this often leads you to become acquainted with them on an entirely new level. I don't know if you feel this as much in the pew as I do in the pulpit, but when you spend a significant amount of time breaking apart the phrases and paragraphs of a book, you often start to get a sense of how an author thought or spoke. You get a sense of what they thought important and even the kind of logic they would use to address a particular problem facing the church. In short, you get a good sense of their personality. It can almost become like you know them personally. You can even begin to anticipate their answers before you get there. That's really fun, I think, to get to know these men that have been so profoundly shaped by God and whom God has used to so dramatically shape His church. Take James, for instance. There's a sense in which after studying James, I not only feel like I almost know him now, but now after getting to know him, I actually want to get to know him better. For example, at the outset of this exposition, I said that James probably wasn't just the leader of the Jerusalem church, as is so often supposed, but that he was probably originally seen as the leader of the church universal. And after studying this epistle, I can certainly understand why. I said before that that this supremacy probably had something to do with James' familial relationship to Jesus, but as I've gotten to look up close at how James addresses these problems going on in the church, I've slowly realized that there's probably much more to it than that. To put it simply, this man thinks like Jesus. And I don't just mean that he happens to quote Jesus from time to time, which he most certainly does. No, I mean like he uses the same kind of logic that Jesus uses and with similar results. I haven't always been able to bring this out in the course of our study, but the way 
James can look at the fruit of a person's actions and then immediately trace it back to its root. And while using very simple and universally apparent theological concepts, it's the exact same kind of thing that you see Jesus do so often in the Gospels. Like there have been moments when I've been studying this epistle and I've thought to myself, if if Jesus ever wrote an epistle, this is probably exactly what it would sound like. The resemblance is that close. You take that and then you realize that James not only grew up with Jesus, with the same kind of teaching and influences that shaped him, and having heard his brother speak and teach perhaps more than any of the other apostles, but that he would have even probably shared a family resemblance. And you realize that for the apostles, talking to James was probably the closest thing there was to talking to Jesus this side of heaven. James may not write with the sort of theological detail that we find in someone like Paul, but he possesses incredible insight and wisdom. In fact, I now get why Paul himself would go and consult James at times. It's because there's a kind of perceptiveness in James' thought that is simply unparalleled. He's incredibly prudent, incredibly wise. In fact, I have to say, after studying this epistle, if I could sit down and have a conversation with any biblical figure other than Jesus, I kind of almost think it would be James. And I say that because I think he's probably the next best thing to the genuine article. He possesses the same kind of penetrating insight. I think he could take most of my questions and resolve them with the same sort of profound simplicity that we find with Jesus. Just imagine then what we'll discover as we dig into the mindset of the evangelist in the book of Philippians. That's going to be a lot of fun to get to become acquainted with the Apostle Paul and learn what made him tick. You think about it after Jesus. He's probably the second greatest evangelist who ever lived. Even secular historians will often acknowledge that he has had a more significant impact on Western culture than perhaps any other individual in history. The man is an evangelistic force of nature. Culturally and theologically speaking, he's a one-man wrecking crew. He essentially turned Europe upside down with his ministry to the Gentiles. And we're going to get to crawl inside his mind and learn what made him do that, where that passion came from. Don't tell me that's not exciting. I think that's exciting. I tell you what, though, there's probably one thing about starting a new epistle that I enjoy more than all of this that I've just mentioned to you. And that's the surprises. You see, I'm often learning here right along with you. I hope you realize this. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm usually a couple of weeks ahead, but it's not as if I've done all the research that can be done on a book in advance. I wish I had that kind of time. I don't, though. I'm mostly working along week by week. I'll start by reading some general overviews of a book so I can get a good idea of where things are headed. I'll perhaps translate the book ahead of time, get a sense of the basic structure of the book. But other than that, I don't really know what's coming until I'm getting ready to preach a passage. That's when I have a chance to get down into the nuts and bolts details of a text. And it's only then that I can really grasp the fuller implications of what an author is saying. And quite often I end up surprised by what I discover. James is no different. When we started, I had a general picture of what James was saying in this epistle. I've captured that sentiment in my title for the series, Wisdom from Above. The idea is that this is an epistle in which James pits the wisdom of the world, this wisdom which James calls earthly, unspiritual, demonic, against the wisdom from above, which comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
Now, it's not exactly as if my understanding of this book has entirely changed. After all, I would still say that this is one of the main ideas of this book. It's most certainly at the core of James' exhortations. But at the same time, I don't think I realized when we started just how much this book is actually about conflict. I was recently reflecting on what James is doing at the close of this book, this whole bit about how we should not judge one another, and neither should we swear an oath. And I turned and said to Emily, you know, if there's a more practical book in the New Testament, if there's a book that does a better job of simply describing how we are to live with one another as Christians, how the church is to function on a day-to-day level, and why, then I'm sure I don't know what it is. Maybe 1 Corinthians, I would come close. I'm, I'm already anticipating that going forward, I'm probably going to be referring to the book of James in my counseling more than probably any other book in the whole of Scripture. You see, if you've been paying attention, then you probably realize by now that most of this book has actually been about speech. I don't think I re- fully realized that point going in, but that's the primary concern that James has here. The way these Christians are misusing their words to hurt and abuse one another. It starts as early as chapter 1 when brothers are not wanting to receive correction for their sin. And James has to tell them, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. These brothers are wanting to lash out and defend themselves against the charges that are being leveled against them. And James has to tell them, hold your tongue. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The, the one who is a hearer of the word only and not a doer is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror and then goes away and immediately forgets what he was like. In short, he tells them you need to do the implications of the gospel, so don't try to defend yourself. Now hold your tongue and be corrected so that you might be conformed to the calling you've received in Christ. Chapter 2, the attention shifts to a concern over the judgments that are being delivered in the church. Church leaders are wanting to show bias to the wealthy while not giving regard to the poor. James has to remind these leaders, not only do these types of judgments contradict the gospel, but that the type of faith that merely professes faith without demonstrating that faith in action is worthless. Again, he's concerned with with this inconsistency between one's speech and their actions and the type of damage that this produces in the body. This leads James to then describe how to evaluate potential leaders in chapter 3. And what's the standard? It's the use of their tongue. He describes both the danger and the untamability of the tongue in the first half of chapter 3. And then he asks the question, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Just a couple verses later, he describes what he means by this statement when he says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In short, he says, the way that you discern the quality of the teacher is by the use of their tongue. The man who's qualified to lead does master his tongue. He doesn't just speak, he listens. He's open to reason and he issues equitable judgments. The result is that peace springs up in his wake. He sows words of wisdom and the fruit is a harvest of righteousness in the people and relationships he encounters. In chapter 4, we learn the root of the conflicts in the church. It's the reader's idolatrous desires. 
And after explaining that God disciplines this idolatry, James turns his attention once again to the tongue. He tells the poor who've been angered by the hypocrisy at work in the church. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And to the rich who try to manipulate their poor brothers with their arrogant boasts, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. In short, he tells them both to guard their tongue. God is disciplining them for their, the things that they're saying to one another. Therefore, if they want to see their pain removed, then they need to repent of what they're saying to each other. We see the outcome of this repentance toward the latter half of chapter 5. James tells his readers that so far from deceiving and cursing one another, they ought instead to confess their sins to one another and pray for one another. He tells them that some of them are actually sick because of the rifts that have been caused in the body with their hateful speech. God is uncovering what man has attempted to cover. And so if they want to see these afflictions taken away, then they're going to have to heal their rifts that they've caused by their speech with their speech. And it's like I told Emily the morning that was marveling over just how practical this book is. You know, when you stop to think about it, this really accounts for like 90% of the sins we commit against each other. Does it not? Really, think about it. What is probably the most common sin that you perform against your brothers and sisters in Christ? I doubt you've ever actually stolen from a brother or sister. Maybe you have, but even so, it's probably been pretty rare. I sure don't think any of you have ever murdered a brother or a sister. You, you probably wouldn't be sitting here today if you did. At least you haven't physically, literally stolen from or murdered your brother, right? But I would practically guarantee you have practiced the kind of manipulation that James talks about in this epistle. You may not have literally stolen from your brother, but you've defrauded them nonetheless. You've done it with your tongue. Just like you've murdered your brother with your tongue in a fit of anger. You lashed out, tried to wish them out of existence with your words. You slandered them, spoke evil against them, condemned them. And just like I've said before, those kinds of words do matter. We may say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But it isn't true. Again, as I've said on multiple occasions, your words may not be tangible. They may only hang in the air for no more than a moment. But the reality is that their impact is felt into eternity. I would even go so far as to say that the most significant and enduring of the works that you will perform in this life will either, by produ- will either be produced or destroyed by your words. So then, you can start to see why I say this is perhaps the most practical book that we encounter in the New Testament. It's because this is a book that's concerned with our words. And there's perhaps no sin so common or even as significant as what we produce with our speech. Well, this morning we get to see this final exposition of James come full circle with one final exhortation, one which not only turns things upside down once again, but which also has to do specifically with the use of the tongue. Let's go ahead and read it together. It's a very short passage. Just two verses, but I think it captures perfectly the summation of what James has been aiming at over the past five chapters. James 5, 19-20, James concludes his letter by saying this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering 
will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I think it's probably normal to become disillusioned with the church at times. I think this is especially common among new Christians. God suddenly opens their eyes and they're filled with such enthusiasm for their newfound faith that they expect the same from other Christians. How could they not be enthused, right? I mean, to know that God has taken all your sin and placed it on the cross because of His great love for you, to know that you're completely forgiven of your sin and have the eternal joys of heaven awaiting you, how could you not be excited by that, right? And so they come to the church filled with this fresh enthusiasm over all the blessings that they've found in Christ, and they expect that what they're going to encounter are mature Christians. They're on fire for Jesus. They want nothing more than to live for Him because they know that there's no greater blessing or joy than that. And as they extrapolate where they think their enthusiasm is going to take them over the next 20 years and project that onto the rest of the church, they expect that what they're going to find when they walk into the church is a body of people filled with the Holy Spirit who are characterized by Christian charity and love and who've been so transformed by the hope of heaven that they're no longer entangled by the cares of this world. They expect Christian humility and sacrifice, a a kind of sacrifice that comes from knowing and believing that this world is not your home. In short, they expect to find a group of people who have been largely freed from the snares of sin, a sort of earthly utopia filled with love, joy, peace, and harmony. Needless to say, that's not what they end up encountering, is it? No, sad to say, but not only do Christians sin, but they often end up sinning against one another, and quite badly at times, don't they? You've experienced it. In fact, I'd I'd wager that you've been on both sides of the experience, haven't you? You've been both sinned against and you've sinned against others. That's like I said before, we expect the church to be the one place where we can go to escape the suffering inflicted by human evil, and yet what we seem to forget is that not only is our sanctification progressive, meaning it occurs over a long period of time, but it also very often begins with the very worst of sinners. It starts with people who can, who can see their sinfulness in part because they're, quote, below average. It starts with the Matthew Levi's of the world and not the rich young rulers. Because the Matthew Levi's of the world don't have to be told they're wicked. They already know it. Listen, the Matthew Levi's of the world have a lot of ground to make up, don't they? Well, that's more or less who we're dealing with in the church. So we really should expect to be sinned against in the church and in some pretty serious ways from time to time. Yet, of course, it can still catch us by surprise, and this surprise can cause a sense of disillusionment. I still remember when it first happened to me. Right after I became a believer, I found this great church, and I mean a really great church, but still about six months in, I got sort of confused when I started to realize that some people chose to do things like go to the lake on Sundays rather than to church, and I thought that was sort of weird, and I started to realize, oh, I guess... I guess maybe Jesus isn't the only thing they're excited about. And and honestly, that kind of shook me. I didn't understand that. I started to wonder, is this whole Holy Spirit thing real? Or are they maybe not Christians? And I thought those things because I didn't really grasp how progressive sanctification works. I wasn't even sinned against. I just saw other Christians be less than absolutely perfect. And this whole sense of disillusionment started to wash over me. Perhaps you've experienced that kind of thing before. Who knows, maybe it's something you're wrestling with now. 
Maybe you look out of the church and you see all kinds of pride and self-centeredness and even flat-out worldliness. You see the lack of concern for truth, the lack of follow-through on clear commands in Scripture, basic commands. And you may wonder, wonder to yourself, how can this be? Why isn't anyone acting like a Christian? Well, if you've ever felt that way, then you're not alone. If you recall, that's how some of James' readers are feeling when he writes this letter. Once again, when James writes, these are the conflicts, there are these conflicts taking place in the church. And as I'm sure you're tired of hearing me tell you by now, these conflicts revolved around money. The rich in the church are consumed by a love for money, and it's apparently causing them to defraud some of their poor brothers out of their wages. The poor brothers are looking at this and they're thinking to themselves, this isn't Christian. In fact, they're not just thinking it, they're saying it. Just as the rich have sinned with their tongue by defrauding their brothers with their arrogant boasts, so also have the poor been slandering and even condemning their brothers for their unchristian actions. We see James condemn this sort of speech up in chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, when he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? James, of course, has been incredibly concerned with this idea of the law of liberty since the very beginning of this epistle. The law of liberty, you may remember, refers to the obligations that flow out of the freedom that we've received in Christ. James applies it to the rich in chapter 1 to remind them that they do need to be righteous, that they do need to repent of their love of money and care for the orphan and widow. In chapter 2, he applies it to church leaders who want to show favoritism towards the rich. The law of liberty, he reminds them, means that both the poor and the rich should be judged by the same measure of judgment, since in Christ they're truly equals They're both accepted on the basis of the same sacrifice. They'll both receive the same inheritance. And so the church leaders would do well to practice no bias and show no partiality in their judgments against their brothers. To the poor, James applies the same standard. He tells them that they need to remember that according to the law of liberty, these rich brothers they want to condemn are still brothers. They've been declared not guilty on the basis of Christ's finished sacrifice. And to therefore go around condemning these brothers is to actually practice a sort of arrogance of the very worst kind, since it not only contradicts God's judgment, but even attempts to stand in judgment over God. No, they can't condemn their brothers, James explains, because the law of liberty indicates that they don't have that authority. They are obligated to forgive their brothers. Well, if that's the case, then how should this law of liberty transform their speech? How should it affect the way they approach conflict? If they shouldn't condemn their brother, then what ought they to do? After all, it's not okay for this kind of sin to just go on in the church, right? Well, then what ought they to do about it? How should they use their tongue to address these problems? That's what James shows us in today's passage. Last week, he told the rich how they ought to transform their speech. He told them that instead of trying to hide their motives, and deceive their brothers. They should instead confess their sin and ask for prayer. Now this week, he does the same thing with the poor. He tells them how they need to transform their speech. And in so doing, I think he points them to two entirely new perspectives that they should adopt in the way that they think about their sinning brother, both of which flow out of this law of liberty. 
And I would strongly encourage you to adopt both of these perspectives in the way you think about your brother or sister when your fellow Christian sins against you. Let's go ahead and look at these points very briefly. I don't think they're very hard to understand, but they are incredibly important and helpful. Once again, there's the action, the way they're supposed to transform their speech, and that's supported by these two different perspectives that they ought to adopt with regard to their brothers. What's the action? It's simply this. Don't condemn, rather pursue. Don't condemn, rather pursue. Don't use your tongue to condemn your brother, James explains. Rather use it to pursue and even restore him. Once again, verses 19 to 20. James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Back in chapter 1, James' readers are struggling with the trials that they're experiencing. They seem to be wondering, perhaps, if God is making them sin specifically so that He can discipline them. This can't be, James explains, because not only is that contrary to the character of God, but it's contrary to His purposes for them. He reminds them, chapter 1, verse 18, "...of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth." that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. This is a critical component to this law of liberty idea. As Christians, we've been set free from our bondage to sin, not so that we might merely serve ourselves, but so that we might, in the words of Paul, present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and our members to God as instruments of righteousness. In short, Christ died for our holiness. And that's not just in a forensic or legal sense. He died not just for your justification, but for your sanctification as well. This is what it means to be under the law of liberty. It means we have been freed from our enslavement to sin so that we might serve a new master, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This means that we're to take every aspect of our being and dedicate it in service to Jesus Christ. This includes not only the intangible aspects of our being, such as our time or energy, but the tangible aspects as well. And this includes not only the parts of us that are unattached to our person, such as our money, but even the parts of us that are attached, meaning we are to use our very bodies to glorify the Lord. This is what Paul means when he speaks about your members. He's talking about the physical members of the body, such as, for instance, the tongue. What does this require to begin to present one's very members in this way? I think Paul describes the matter quite well in Ephesians 4. He says, verses 17 to 24, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. In short, it requires, what does this again require to present one's members, very members this way? In short, it requires a 180 degree turn. It isn't enough to merely put off the former way of life. That's how a lot of Christians try to define 
obedience. They define it by all the things they don't do, all the things they've stopped doing for the sake of Jesus. But that's only half of the process. The other half requires also putting on the new self. And it's actually this new self that Paul explains is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Again, God wants us to be holy. He wants us to resemble Him. That doesn't come by simply putting away the former manner of life that you lived before Jesus, but by also putting on the new self that you've received in Christ. Paul describes this putting off, putting on transformation, what it looks like in the following context. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not, give the, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgive one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You guys see this? It's, it's not enough that the thief no longer steal. No, he must work with his hands as well. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. There's this 180-degree turn that's required. And if you're paying attention then... There are probably two items to note about Paul's instructions in Ephesians 4. First off, it includes the use of the tongue. And then number two, it's driven by the new identity we've received in Christ. Therefore, having put away falsehood, that's the putting off part, let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor. There's the putting on. Why should they speak this way? For we are members of one another. There's the new identity part. That all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Again, there's the putting off part, clearly. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. There's the putting on part. Again, why? Why should we speak this way? Paul says that we should forgive, quote, as God in Christ forgave you. There's that new identity idea again. As we come to the close of James, this is James' final exhortation to his readers as well. He's already told how the rich should transform their speech. They should put away deceit. They should stop trying to hide their sinful motives. And instead, they ought to confess them. And now he turns to the poor, the brothers who've been offended, and he tells them, it's not enough to simply put away your slander and condemnation. You must actually seek to restore your brother instead. This is undoubtedly what makes one's speech truly Christian in character. And sometimes said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But there's nothing really special about that. Lots of people can do that. But to actually love your enemy enough to seek their restoration from things like the disciplinary sickness that we see up in verses 13 to 18, that's another matter entirely. The simple fact of the matter is that mere silence isn't actually love. It's, it's not even close, not when a person is in danger. I mean, if I saw one of my own children running out into traffic and I didn't at least cry out to warn them and beg them to come back, you would think that I must be one of the most unfeeling and heartless parents who've ever lived. Well, you have to understand, that's essentially what's happening here. 
James has just told his listeners that some of them are suffering this extreme form of sickness. They're bedridden even because they've aroused the jealousy of God with their sin. If these brothers respond to this discipline with a hearty amen, there's nothing Christ-like in that. Not when these are members of the same body. Not when these are the sheep for whom the good shepherd has laid down his life. But neither is it good enough to merely stay silent either. After all, Christ's love is not displayed merely by the fact that he refused to actively destroy us while we were his enemies. No, it's displayed in the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is where this final exhortation is coming from. It's coming from the fact that this is what the law of liberty demands. Brothers and sisters, if you've been wrong, or if you see a brother or sister wandering into sin, this is something you have to keep in mind. You can't merely stay silent. Like, it's not optional. You have to speak up. This is what true repentance looks like. It's what Paul says. We, we must not only not be angry, but we must also not let the sun go down on our anger. Some people think it's enough to merely stay silent when someone wrongs us. We think that's what righteousness looks like. It's avoiding conflict. But that's actually not what the Bible tells us to do. It actually tells us to go into the conflict in order to see the sin put away. Why ought we to do this again, Paul tells us. He says we're to give the devil no opportunity. Remember how James said back in chapter 4 that we're to resist the devil and he will flee from us? Well, this is what happens when sin goes unchecked. Satan is given the opportunity to afflict the body through temptation, which then incurs the disciplinary correction of God. This is why Paul describes the final step of church discipline on two different occasions as turning someone over to Satan. When someone is removed from the sanctifying influence of the church, where we do speak the truth to one another in love, they're made vulnerable to Satan's ploys. And the only outcome there is destruction. Listen, love dictates that we can't let this happen to our brother. The only point at which we should become silent is when our brother or sister has ignored our pleas so often that the only recourse we have left is to, in the words of Paul, deliver them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's when the only option we have left is to let them sin so that God Himself can discipline them into repentance that we remain silent. Until that point, we must speak. So the next time someone wrongs you or when you see someone in sin, remember that the law of liberty demands that you not only not use your tongue to destroy your brothers, but you must actually use it to restore them. The question is, though, where does this kind of speech come from? I think James hints at two different perspectives that arise out of the law of liberty in this passage, which in turn drive this transformed speech. The first new perspective is this. Number one, assume the best of your brother rather than the worst. Assume the best of your brother rather than the worst. It's not so, it's, it's, I'm sorry, rather, it's, it's very common when someone sins against us to assume the very worst of them. We'll say to ourselves, they meant to do that. Or they know exactly what they're doing. We tend not to extend grace, to assume that 
many of their sins may be performed in ignorance. And even when we're right, even when they do know what they're doing, we fail to take into account how very hard it is to obey. And how sometimes even our very worst sins are not always driven by malice towards our brother, but by our own weaknesses, our own fears and lack of faith. You take these rich brothers here, for instance, and what's their flaw? Are they selfish? I mean, sure. But if you're paying attention, it would also seem they're quite scared. The reason they're manipulating the finances is because they're afraid of what's going to happen to them if they don't. Now, that doesn't excuse their sin. They're still sacrificing their brother for their own comfort. That's wrong. But still, I think we can understand where that fear comes from, can't we? Certainly, the poor of all people should be able to sympathize with what it feels like to fear for your financial future. All to say, not all sin is driven by malice alone. Much of it is driven by our own weaknesses and fears. If you look at the way James speaks here, that's more or less how he's regarding the sins of the rich. Two times he speaks of them as, quote, wandering from the faith. Now, the root word here is planao, and it's actually the word from which, you get the, we, from which we get the term planet. Now, planets in the eyes of the ancient world were stars. They didn't hold their course in the night sky. They wandered. That's the sense of this word planao. It actually means something like to lead astray or to deceive. And when it's used in the passive sense, as it is here, then it means something like to be led astray or to err. In other words, the connotation here is that it's not as if these brothers have exactly intentionally taken this course. No, they've been led astray. They've wandered. This seems to be the attitude that Paul adopts in Galatians 6.1 when he writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The word for caught there is prolambano, and it means something like to be overtaken or even to be taken by surprise. The idea is that the sin has overpowered the brother or even ambushed them by surprise. One thinks of an animal caught in a snare. That's the picture that Paul presents when he writes Galatians 6.1. This is one way to change your attitude toward your sinning brother, by seeing them less as a perpetrator and more as a victim. And to be clear, by that, I'm not trying to remove the idea of guilt. I'm not trying to say that they aren't responsible for their sin. I'm just saying that, number one, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so, to some degree, the law of liberty does dictate that you can and even should assume the best from your brother instead of the worst. Understand, they're not unbelievers, meaning they do have a power that's at work in them waging war against the flesh. So, you can more or less begin by assuming that they do want to please God, but they're caught. In fact, even Paul tells us that this is what love does in 1 Corinthians 13. It believes and hopes all things. It assumes the best case scenario in a person, not the worst, even when they sin. So I'm not trying to clear the center of responsibility. I'm just saying, number one, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so we really can't assume the best in them. And then number two, I'm saying that the outcome of their sin is also going to be bad. Sometimes quite bad. It's like what James says back in chapter 1. Desire gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In fact, that's actually what seems to be happening here quite literally. When James refers to saving this brother's soul from death, he doesn't mean that in the sense of eternal death. No, we have to refer the meaning of save here back up to verse 15, where James says, 
that the prayer of faith will, quote, save or more literally rescue or preserve the one who is sick. Like these brothers' sins are leading to a disciplinary sickness that can lead to death. And the one who draws this brother back will save their psyche, their soul, or simply even their life from an actual physical death. Again, this is the outcome of sin. It produces pain. And to know that a brother has been led astray into this kind of consequence, that should evoke some measure of sympathy from us, even when they have sinned against us. Understand, it's like James has already told us, we have no need to judge our brothers since there is already a greater judge who will answer for us and will answer perfectly. And the discipline or even punishment that he'll hand down for these sins is actually far greater and more just than anything that we can ever do. And so we don't have to see them only as a criminal deserving of judgment. We can see them as a brother in need of compassion too. And this leads us to the second change in perspective hinted at in this passage. And that's to number two, hope for the best for your brother rather than the worst. Hope for the best for your brother rather than the worst. One thing I haven't commented on too much throughout this letter, but which you've probably noticed, is James' insistence on this phrase, my brothers, throughout the letter. Every time James wants to begin a new section, he begins with this form of address, my brothers, or even my beloved brothers. It's as if throughout this letter, he wants to remind these Christians that they are indeed members of the same body. This is another product of the law of liberty. It reminds us that the brothers who sin against us aren't our enemies. They're our brothers. Like we share a kinship that's actually closer than any physical blood. We're united instead by the blood of Christ, meaning we have been joined together in one body and we will one day enjoy the same inheritance where we will experience unbroken fellowship with one another for eternity. There's a real bond here that can't be separated by the pains of death like our family relations can be because we'll share in the same resurrection. The affection that's produced by this shared kinship, this brotherhood, ought to again evoke feelings of warmth and sympathy for our brothers which leads us to desire their good rather than their destruction. This seems to be part of what the poor are forgetting in their judgments. By condemning their brothers, they're no longer seeing them as brothers. So James reminds them they can't do this. They can't stand in judgment over God's judgment in this way. And the outcome of that renewed thinking about their brothers ought to be that they end up desiring precisely this, their good rather than their evil. This is another way that the love of God is manifest in us. He doesn't just love his enemies. But he loves most especially his own people. Like Jesus lays down his life for his sheep specifically, and he does it because they're his brothers. I know this is a doctrine that can sometimes make people sort of uncomfortable, but there's no denying its existence on the pages of Scripture. God does not love all people equally. Don't get me wrong, he doesn't show any partiality. He's completely just in his judgments. And just as Peter notes in Acts 10.35, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. But all the same, that being said, he does make a distinction between those who do fear him, 
those who are His own people and those who are not. We could talk about God's distinction between Jacob and Esau, for instance, and how He had a special kind of love for the one over the other. We could also speak of God's special love for Jacob's descendants, the nation of Israel, which He chose to serve as a special vehicle of His glory. But perhaps the clearest example occurs in John 17, when just before His death, Jesus goes out of His way to pray for His disciples specifically. John 17, 9, He says, with reference to those who have believed His word, quote, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. This echoes the sentiment of John 10, 14 to 15, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus makes it very clear there are those who do not know him, who do not recognize his voice, and who do not belong to him. There are those who don't believe. And they are not his sheep. And he does not lay down his life for them, nor does he pray for them. No, the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep specifically. The high priest intercedes for his people specifically. They share a special place in his heart. And why? Jesus already told us the answer. John 17, 9. Once again, he tells the Father, he prays for the disciples rather than the world. Why? Quote, for they are yours. Jesus looks to his Father, and as he sees that God does have a special kind of love for those who fear his name and do what is acceptable in his sight, he in turn regards them with a special kind of affection himself. They are his Father's beloved, and since they are his Father's beloved, they're his beloved as well. Do you understand, Christian? This was James' point back at the end of chapter 4. If God loves this people, then you can't say that you love God and not love them as well. That actually contradicts His judgment. Of course, this is precisely what John says in 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's very simple, brothers and sisters. If you love God, then you cannot help but have a sincere affection for his people because he loves them again christ unites us the love of the father unites us it produces in us a unique love for the brethren even in spite of their sin we possess a special love for them because of the unique relationship that they have with god and by virtue of that relationship with us as well and the end product of this love ought to be that we hope for the best for our brothers not the worst You know what it's like to have a family, don't you? Most of the times, I'm not going to say all the times because we do live in a world filled with sin, but most of the times, most of the times, you love your family no matter what, right? They don't always treat you well. In fact, a lot of times they can actually treat you quite poorly. And yet, in spite of all that, you still root for your family, don't you? Like you put up with a lot, right? Why? Because they're your family and you can't change your family. So even though they make you mad sometimes, you still get excited with when one of them gets a promotion at work or has a baby or gets married. You celebrate their birthday and send them gifts around Christmas time. Why? Because you like them. You want good for them. Friends, that's how it's supposed to be with your spiritual family as well. Just as all kinds of sin cannot sever the bonds you share with your physical family because for better or worse, you can't change your family, much more does the blood of Christ tie you to your spiritual family. 
And the end result of these bonds is that even when your family sins against you, you still desire their good because you love them. And this ought to mean that when we see our brother or sister in sin, even when they sin against us, we don't desire their destruction. No, we desire their restoration. We want the best for them. And so rather than utter oaths against them, and rather than delight in the discipline that they end up receiving from God, we ought instead to seek them out, and we ask them to come back and experience the blessing of God. I'd imagine that some of you have had family that that have done a lot of damage to their life. Maybe they got mixed up in drugs or some other kind of illegal activity. Maybe they've just continued to make poor choices over and over again. Now, I'd imagine that sometimes some of those sinful decisions have affected you. What do you do? Do you just disown that person? No, you seek them out. You've probably told them that they need to get off drugs or if they made a bad decision, maybe went into debt or something like that, you try to help them out. You've, you've tried to help them find a job or maybe given them a place to stay for a little while. Again, why? Because that's what family does. We help each other. Even when they do dumb stuff, we help each other. That's the idea that James presents here as well. The brother or sister is physically ill because of the sinful choices that they've made. And instead of gloating, over their sorrow, the believer ought to be heartbroken of it. The picture is almost of one family member coming to another while they're addicted to heroin or something like that. And after seeing their emaciated body and the needle marks in their arm, not getting enraged at them for their sinful choices, but instead pleading with them with great desperation and sorrow. Brother, you can't keep doing this to yourself. Come on, let me help you. You need to get off this. Let me take you to rehab and then pushing back when their family member tries to refuse. Brothers and sisters, is this how you see your brother or sister in Christ after they sin against you? Is your first response to their sin to destroy, to make them pay, or is it to pursue and restore? The law of liberty demands that you pursue and restore. So if your first response is to destroy, then I'd strongly encourage you to adopt the perspectives that James is taking in today's passage. Assume the best of your brother and hope the best for your brother. Keep in mind, this book is about conflict. But it's also about how to pursue conflict according to the wisdom from above specifically. There are two paths you can take when your brother sins against you. You can pursue the way that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. In short, you can try to get even. Or you can approach it from God's perspective, according to heavenly wisdom, and show compassion. You will regret the first path. As James told us at the very beginning of the book, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But if you pursue the second path, if you show mercy, James promises you, you will be blessed. And not only will you be blessed, but your brother will as well. It's like James says here, this kind of love covers a multitude of sins. There are many kinds of consequences that can be healed through your brother's repentance. So pursue the wisdom from above and be blessed. This concludes our time together in James. 
I hope the past several months in this book have been as enriching for you as I know it has been for me. Next week, we're going to take a brief look at what the church does look like when it's living in harmony with one another and the tremendous witness this sort of love produces. And then after that, we'll begin our exposition of the book of Philippians in a couple weeks later. I'd encourage you to come back as we begin this study together and crawl inside Paul's head and explore the gospel-oriented psyche of the evangelist. In the meantime, let's close with prayer. Let's pray.